This is episode 121 of Off Script with Trish Close, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me today via Skype, I have Sarah Moulton. I feel like you do not need an introduction. Hello, thank you for being here. Trish, thanks for having me. I'm gonna look like this for the entire interview. This is what my smile is gonna look like because I am so excited to chat with you. I typically write out just some notes of kind of who you are for those people who have no idea. And it took up an entire page of all of your things that you do and have done. I mean, good grief, Sarah Moulton, TV shows, a 30-year career we're talking about, protege of Julia Child, co-founder of New York Women's Culinary Alliance, executive chef, gourmet magazine, food editor. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. You've had TV shows on Food Network. You've had TV shows um, all over the place. You're the author of several cookbooks. You appear weekly on Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. My goodness, woman. Well, I'm old. Ah. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this for a while. It's 40 years. So there you go. You got to pack something in there. You're just still a sprout. No, I, no, I feel some, some mornings I feel it too. And you look back at all the things you've done and you're like, wow, I've done a lot. And then you sort of feel that way. No, I've just been doing this a really long time. I hope I have a long list of, of things, right? Um, I'm super excited to talk to you. I want to start with an easy question though. Where are you from originally, Sarah Moulton? New York City. New York City, born and raised? Yes. Wow, what did, your, uh, what did your family do in New York City? Well, my mom was uh, uh, aspiring, well, she was a writer and also an amateur watercolorist, but mostly because that's what was going on right now, a housewife. And my dad worked for a big company called Fiduciary Trust Company. He was a lawyer by training, but he did trust wills and estates. Okay, what was it like growing up in New York City? Loved it. Really? Loved it. It was the best period for New York. It was, you know, it was the 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, well, 60s mostly that, you know, I was really getting out and about. Um, you know, it was a dangerous place. And, uh, but it was an interesting place as it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm back. Uh, uh, I loved it. I really loved it. I still love it. So you left for a while, for a time? I went to the University of Michigan mm -hmm. to go to college, mm -hmm. and then I went to the Culinary Institute of America to go to cooking school, mm -hmm. and then I lived mm -hmm. in Boston for four years or five years, and then the husband, the now husband for many years, dragged me back to New York City. Fantastic. Was food important growing up? So important. I was a little butterball. Uh, I lived <laughs> to eat. I could almost say I still do, but a few other things have come in the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just, when I was little, I just loved my, I, lo I, I loved hot dogs and hot fudge sundaes and French fries and all those bad things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, but, but my mother was a really, really great cook. And at a certain point when I hit puberty, I realized that I liked boys and maybe I was a little too chunky. I mean, I was really quite a butterball. So I started eating healthier and I started really noticing this wonderful food that my mom was making. And so I started really appreciating that. So, so I switched. As a youngster, were you not eating mom's food or were you eating mom's food I, and all the food? No, I wasn't interested in her food. I just oh. wanted hot dogs and hot fudge sundaes. And um, to this day, hot dogs are very exciting to me. I only eat one about every two years, mm -hmm. but oh my God, it's so exciting. As a matter of fact, during this period of the pandemic, I've been thinking about ordering some. I've been doing do research it. on the best. Uh, and I don't mean designer hot dogs. I want the good old fashioned kind. 
Yeah. I, I am a huge hot dog fan, by the way. I'm from South Carolina, and I love my hot dogs with coleslaw on them. Oh, God, yes. What a right. great idea. <sighs> I have half ketchup, half hot dog, but coleslaw is not a bad idea. Right? A good, like, creamy, sort of vinegary coleslaw on top of this, like, hot dog that's been grilled and, and the buns buttered. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, heaven. You're going you're gonna to have a hot dog pretty soon, I have a feeling. <laughs> Waiting, yes. So when did you notice, you said it was right around puberty that you noticed mom was just cooking really good food. Was that about the time? Yes, exactly. I mean, she had been, I just hadn't Mm -hmm. wanted to partake. And then, I don't know, maybe my taste buds changed or besides the fact that I wanted to eat healthier, but she was a really good cook. Uh, She had no formal training, but it was sort of fun for her to cook, uh, especially even before the, we all arrived, there's three of us. And so she, we were lucky that we lived A, in New York, so we could get a lot of good ingredients, but B, we had the uh, restaurant critic, and then he was the food editor of the New York Times, Craig Claiborne, and he wrote the New York Times cookbook. And it's interesting, it was a really iconic cookbook, and I've met a lot of chefs in recent years, particularly older chefs like me, where that was a really important book for them because in that book we're talking, I don't remember when it came out, I think early 60s, um, were recipes for paella and spanakopita and bouillabaisse and, you know, all these international recipes that you weren't finding elsewhere. And so it's, you know, it reflected what had been in the newspaper uh, obviously, this is a collection of all the recipes that appeared in the newspaper. So my mom had access to good recipes and also good ingredients. But then also she started traveling to Europe um, with a girlfriend. My dad wasn't interested initially. And she'd come back and she'd have to make the food of the country she'd just been to. So uh, then we'd throw dinner parties and I'd be her sous chef. And I just loved it. It was Amazing. really fun. Amazing. You liked being in the kitchen with her. I loved being in the kitchen with her. And I loved the yummy food we made. Mm -hmm. And I loved repurposing the leftovers the next day into something else. To this day, my favorite thing is to be faced with a refrigerator full of leftovers. They speak to me. They tell me to do things that they weren't doing originally that I can take them in a different direction. We got to talk about this. We got to talk about the leftovers. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Um, was that this period where moms, did you notice too, as, as you're paying attention to the food that was coming out of her kitchen and her cooking, her technique, did you see it change at all? Or was she pretty steadfast in how she was in the kitchen? Technique wise. That's a question. I, that, nobody's ever asked me that question before. She just seemed great from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, from the moment I started noticing till the moment, well, the moment never stopped really. When I went to college, I missed her cooking and I'd let her know before I came home what I wanted her to make. Yeah, no, she was pretty consistent. I I don't, she didn't learn, you know, from anybody except just herself. And she was working with ingredients. I mean, we're talking again about the sixties, fresh fennel and, um, mushrooms were exotic back then and endive and, she was just doing anchovies. I mean, she was, and she wasn't Italian or anything. So it was, she was amazing. That is amazing. That's amazing that she taught herself. I mean, I, I don't have any sort of formal training and I'm not a great cook by, well, I'm a decent, I'm okay. But I learned from people like you, right? Watching on TV and watching you guys. 
I mean, we've got that now. We didn't have that then except for Julia. However, I really believe that you can teach yourself how to cook by just doing it, you know, getting a cookbook. You need a cookbook with instructions and then just working your way through a cookbook. When I did a live show on the Food Network in, um, you know, late nine, you know, 1900s, early two, 2000s, I talked to people around the country. It was a live call-in show. And I was floored by how much home cooks knew. And a lot of it was just because they would make the same dish over and over and over again, or they do variations on a dish. They were amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and I bet you you're a better cook than you're letting on right now. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not going to yeah. lie. I'm pretty good. Or you do, I mean, just do it, you know? I come from a long line of cooks, of, of men and women in my family who can cook and bake amazingly. And so you just, I think you pick up things um, along the way and... At some point for me, it was just like, man, I love doing this. Was there an aha moment for you, whether it was at home before you went to college or in college? Where was that aha moment where you're like, I, I got to go to culinary school? It, I never figured it out. My no? mom did. So I went to college, University of Michigan, loved it. Uh, it was, I was in this little part of it called the residential college, which was like a little hippy dippy enclave within the literature and science and arts division. And we had no grades, just evaluation and all these interesting alternative kind of classes. So I guess I got a liberal arts degree, but I always had jobs in restaurants so or cooking. So I cooked for a family. I was a waitress in several restaurants. And then I ended up uh, being a cook in a bar, a jazz bar in Ann Arbor called the Del Rio that unfortunately is no longer. And it was a wonderful experience. I really loved it. Um, but it wasn't like oat cuisine. It was, you know, bar food. And my mom was sort of horrified. It was a year after I, sh I graduated or should have, I had to take an extra year off because I didn't finish my thesis. That's the only thing I had to do. I wrote my thesis on Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse. So you could see how far I'd strayed. Um, <laughs> And I had no particular career in mind. I'd pursued becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a biological medical illustrator. I should have pursued becoming a teacher because that was, I, I had always tutored kids. Yeah, I am a teacher. At the end of the day, that's what happened. Um, but at any rate, my mom was horrified that I didn't have, a, I was living with my boyfriend and working at this bar and making $60 a week or something and happy as a clam, sure. but no particular future in mind. And so my mother wrote to Craig Claiborne, the guy that wrote that cookbook, and also to Julia Child and said, she didn't ask me, she just did this, yeah. And she said, if my daughter wants to become a chef, what should she do? And Julia didn't write her back, which is interesting, uh, because Julia wrote everybody back. She must not have gotten the letter somehow. But Craig did write her back and said, if your daughter wants to become a chef, she should go to cooking school. She should either go to the hotel school in Lausanne, Switzerland, or to the CIA, the Culinary Institute. Now, I didn't want to go all the way to Switzerland because that seemed too far away from this boyfriend. But I thought, oh, well, I'll apply to the CIA and they won't accept me. The CIA is in Poughkeepsie, New York. So it's about an hour and a half north of the city, or maybe it's two hours. Any rate, I thought, well, I'll apply. They won't let me in because you needed to have some sort of serious training. And all I'd done was sling burgers in a bar, you know, and make some soups with a lifetime supply of soup base, which is mostly salt. But they did accept me. And I was like, oh, no, you know, somebody called my bluff. 
So I went to the boyfriend and I said, you know, you, you don't really want me to leave you here, do you? And go to cooking school. And he said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I think you should because I want to see other women. So thank you, yeah. boyfriend. Well, actually, it really helped because it shot right. me out of there like cannon. And he's now my husband of almost 39 years. Stop it. Yeah. So we needed that time apart. Yeah. We met when we were 21. We didn't get married till we were 29. But this all happened in between. And had we not, if I had not left, we would not be together today. Do you think he knew, maybe? Did, did, did... No, I th no, I think he was, you know, as young men are, they sort of had certain things on their minds. Mm -hmm. And um, a deep relationship with one human being was not it at that particular moment. For sure. I mean, for sure. lucky for me, there were all these cute young chefs. So, And we had an agreement that we wouldn't completely split up. We'd stay in touch, but we would see other people. And so that was, um, it was a very exciting time. Uh, really not because of the cute chefs, although that was fun too. <laughs> but, um, I finally was learning things I was desperate to know. Really? Uh, it's always, I was a good student. I went to this very rigorous high school in New York City, and it taught me how to study, but I wasn't mostly learning what I wanted to. And at school, mm. I think I was too busy having fun to really, at college, to focus on anything. But at cooking school, oh my God, I couldn't get enough of it. It was so wonderful. And obviously, that's kind of how you know, right? When you just get into something and you're so passionate about it that you can stay up at two o'clock in the morning doing something for right an all-night project how to design a restaurant yeah for example mm -hmm. you know it's i feel very blessed because not everybody finds their passion some people just have to get a job and get paid but i have always loved you know what once i found it you know, it's just, oh, my God, you pay me to do this? Right. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get back to the letters that your mom wrote to Julia Child and Craig Claiborne. She didn't know these people. No, never met them. Mm -mm. So what on earth motivated her to write to these two people for you on your behalf? Because she cared about, well, she cared desperately that I have a career. Sure. She really thought I had some talent from those dinner parties we did and also from what I did with those leftovers the next day. And she felt a connection to Craig Claiborne because she just, she made all these recipes and mm -hmm. she was a New Yorker and he was a New York and Julia was an icon. So what the heck, why not? You know, and actually that was a good idea because Julia generally did respond. I don't know what happened. So, you know, but. So you yeah. go to uh, Culinary Institute and it's just, you, you know, uh, uh, what's that phrase that they say? You're like a, a round peg in a round hole. You just like fit perfectly in this, in this environment. Well, in terms of the education, not in terms of the milieu. I mean, back <laughs> then, uh, most all of the teachers were male, except mm -hmm. for one who, everybody, it was really awful. They called her Juicy Lucy. Um, and she was actually not juicy in the sense of being sexy or anything. She was just a little bit ditzy. She wasn't the best representative Aww. and it wasn't. Any rate, so there weren't any um, mentors to look up to. And the men, the most of the teachers were European males and they really didn't think we belonged in the kitchen, nor did most of my Women didn't students. belong. Yeah, women didn't belong. So the ratio, although it still doesn't seem that bad, was six to one men to women. 
And I was older than most of the students. Uh, I went when I was 23 and they were 18 and most of them were men and most of them had already worked in restaurants. And they also didn't think I had any business going to, most of them. Of course, some of them were wonderful and and great mentors. But it um, it was a battle. And it was a battle I fought all the time, but I didn't care maybe because I was a little bit older and I was a good student and I knew how to navigate. The teachers certainly appreciated a good student because what 18 year old boys have on, you know, on their minds, certainly not focusing on their studies. So, you know, I was a good student and eventually some of my fellow students, these guys who thought I had no business in the kitchen were asking me questions because I was doing the homework. Um, Not that when you go to cooking school, I mean, there's two different ways to think about it. You can become a chef by working in a kitchen, which is how most men used to do it. Or you can become a chef by starting at cooking school. But cooking school is not a restaurant kitchen by any means. You have to get out in the field. Mm -hmm. So, but I had the book learning. So I knew the proportions. I knew the, you know, the mother recipes. I knew the variations. So that's what people came to ask me about. Did you realize while you're in cooking school sort of what you wanted to do? Did you want to be a chef in a busy kitchen? Did you want to teach? Did you want to write cookbooks? Did that, you know, uh, did you figure that out while you were there? I actually, what I thought when I went in was what I thought when I came out. Not that that hasn't happened to other people where they evolve and figure out something else. When I went in, I wanted to be the chef of a fine dining small restaurant. And when I left, that's what I wanted to do. And that is what I pursued. Um, For seven years, I did that. Uh, I wasn't, I started out not at the top, but I did eventually end up being the chef. Although my very last job was at a wonderful restaurant in New York that's no longer. Every restaurant I worked at except for one is no longer. And I think it's actually surviving the uh, pandemic. It's the first restaurant I worked at. It's in Cambridge in Harvard Square. It's called The Harvest. And uh, that's where I did my externship. And then I went back as the sous chef. But um, yeah, so I only worked in fine dining, small restaurants. And I loved that. What about for seven what about that did you love so much that small you know the kind of the smaller restaurants fine dining because it was really good food it was really beautifully put together it was excellence i'm I'm, don't get me wrong that you know at every single level you know one of my favorite restaurants currently is a restaurant we shot an episode at um near charleston south carolina called Mary Lou's, it's a fried chicken joint and it's so good. So I'm, I'm not, that is fantastic food. But for me, I liked having a, you know, a larger menu and uh, working with seasonal ingredients and changing the menu according to the seasons. When, when I was in Boston, I would work with the other chefs and we would order ingredients together like, oh, it's morel season. Let's get a case of morels. They're so expensive and split it. And it was really, it was really fun. Um, I loved it. Amazing. Uh, morels and chanterelles grow like weeds around this area in Oregon. Oh, and I, do you know? Do you know how to harvest them? You have to be very careful when very, you're harvesting mushrooms. Very, very careful. In fact, there's a, a, a poisonous mushroom that looks very much like the morel mushroom. So mm, you have to take mm. out an expert with you, or at least if I ever go mushroom hunting, I will. But I have a friend who hunts them, and he just gives them to me. So. 
Oh, you lucky woman. I you. know it's not a, it's not a bad gig. I was just going to say, you know, when you were talking about the fried chicken restaurant and fine dining, I think that's one thing I love about food is that it it has its place almost everywhere. Street food, a greasy fried chicken joint or a breakfast place or fine dining, you know, whatever. I mean, it has its place kind of everywhere. Yeah. And, and you know, 99, I believe, I've, I have no statistics to back me up, but I'd say 99 out of 100 people love to eat. And I don't really want to know that one person very much. We don't have much in common, what can I say? So it, it's just great what food does for people. Uh, Truly. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It really does bring people together. Uh, when did you yes. meet Julia Child? Well, let me see. Uh, when I was in Boston, uh, so I was there for four years uh, working in restaurants. And one of the gigs I had for nine months, which was a stepping stone to get to a restaurant I wanted to be the chef of. So the woman who owned this it was a commissary where we'd make food for all her little gourmet takeout shops. She also owned a restaurant called Sabelle's, which I did end up eventually getting the job to be the chef. But in the meantime, this was a stepping stone. And when I was at that commissary in Cambridge, you know, so we'd make, we'd do catering, uh, but we'd also make the food for all the stores. One day I was talking with one of my workers. We were peeling a million hard boiled eggs for some catering event. And we were, ta I was talking about how Julia hard boiled her eggs, which is to not boil them. And she said, oh, well, I'm friends with Julia Child. Um, my mom is very good friends with her. This young woman's name was Barrett Pratt. Her mom was Pat Pratt, who happened to be one of Julia Child's best friends. And she said, and um, I'm a volunteer, Barrett said, and me and my mom are volunteers on Julia Child's PBS show. I was like, really? <laughs> I said, well, do you think she likes someone else? Could I join? And she said, well, yeah, we're about to shoot another season. Let me, let me go ask her and I'll get back to you. So she came in the next day and she said, I talked to Julia and um, Julia wants to hire you. I said, pay me? And uh, she said, yes. And I said, but she's not even met me. So I told her all about you. Go call her. So back then, this is pre-cell phones. We're talking about 1978. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I went down to the corner pay phone at the drugstore. I didn't want to use the phone at work. I didn't know where this was going. And Julia gets right on the phone. She was listed. Um, and she says, oh, hello, dearie. I've heard all about you. Do you food style? <laughs> food style. Now, yeah. So back in 78, food styling was not the codified art that it is now. It's really a very unique part of the culinary world. And it's one of the few places you can actually make money is doing food styling for advertisements, um, for TV. You know, it's, it's a very specific art. And um, I had not done it. Nope, I had not. But I thought to myself very quickly, well... I used to land food very nicely at that at the Harvest, the restaurant that I worked at. You know, it's very pretty, and I got compliments on where I put the parsley uh, as a garnish. I uh, just did cold poached decorated salmon for 700, you know, with cucumbers all over it. That looked pretty good. You know, I used to do watercolors in high school. Yeah, I'm pretty artistic. So I lied, and I told her I was very good at it, and I got hired. Of course you did. And then along the way, and this is a terrible story because nobody should ever lie, 
But I have told young people, sometimes you have to sort of stretch Mm -hmm. and present yourself in a way and then just bring a lot to the table, even if it isn't specifically what they asked, so that you become invaluable. And um, it worked out. What can I say? So I worked on that series. It was called Julia Child and More Company. I worked seven days a week for three months, two days with her, because they only worked three days a week. So I worked two out of the three with the Julia Child crew. And then the other five days, I worked at, I got the job at Sabelle's, the restaurant. And so I was the chef at Sabelle's five days and worked with Julia too. And it was wonderful working with her. I mean, yeah, it was hectic starting both those jobs at the same time. Sure. But sure. she was just, I expected her to just tell us what to do. And she wanted to know what we thought, which was quite daunting. I mean, I was pretty green. Uh, I was only a couple years out of cooking school. But we developed, I mean, she would come up with the idea for a recipe. And then we would develop it as we did the show, which is unheard of. You know, now I do public television. Everything's completely done and locked up, figured out and, you know, written down before you ever start. But we would be developing the recipes as we were doing the show. And she took the lead, but we would do it and then retest it and retest it. So it was a great start at learning how to do the development and testing of recipes. Some recipes took us 13 times to get right. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Like gâteau au trois gâteau au trois chocolat, or uh, <laughs> there was a, a cre- this crepe thing with many, many layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we did. Yeah. Your it's Julia Child fake. impression is on point, by the yeah. way. Yeah. How, yes. so when you were doing this, working with her, working at Spells, how old were you? 29. Wow. A lot of creative freedom, too, with that. As you, as you just mentioned, you're sort of developing these as you go along where that just doesn't really exist now. So, yeah, what a way to kind of start off, right? Because you have all of this freedom. It was, it was, it was a great experience. I mean, it. Wow. I mean, I was learning across the board about absolutely everything. And I do want to say, I don't know necessarily that you lied so much. You know, my mom has told me this before. Do you think deep down you just knew I can do that? I can do that. I felt I have an artistic bent. Um, I felt like I can pull this off. Yeah. Mm I, re- I, I, oh, I did do watercolors in high school, and I had been complimented on the way my place sure. looked. So, so you're like, yeah, I can I do this. Yeah, and it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't codified, so nobody had any training in it. It's just certain people were better at it. And who usually did her food styling was her friend um, Rosie Minnell. And Rosie couldn't make it till midway through the taping, a month and a half in. So she just needed somebody to fill in, and she assumed because I'd gone to the Harvard of cooking school, <laughs> meaning the CIA, right. that I must just know how to food style. Oh, and I didn't oh. um, tell her that was wrong. Perfect. How did your relationship develop and evolve after that? She, she was, a Julia Child could not have children, but she mm-hmm. had so many children. Mm-hmm. So I was one of her many children. So she mentored me. She loved, I think she liked my earnestness she liked the fact that I wanted to be a chef and work in restaurants. Um, and so she sort of took me under her wing and wanted good things for me. One of the things that she decided <laughs> while we were recording, the, doing the show one day, she people would come and visit us sometimes while we were recording. We'd stop every day for lunch. And um, 
people would come visit. And one day this uh, chef from France uh, who didn't speak English, um, an f- old friend of Julia's arrived and because Julia made a lot of friends mm-hmm. and chefs in mm-hmm. France. And before I knew it, she'd signed me up for an externship at his restaurant in Chartres, France. Um, and that was it was a done deal. There was no way I could say, um, no, I can't do that. So, because she thought that it would be really good for me to actually go and work in a French kitchen. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she was right. Um, So I did. So when we were done with the recording, I think, I don't know if it was the next year or it was the fall of, might even been the fall of, I um, left, I took a leave of absence from the restaurant I was chef at. I had a really great second in command. So she took over for three months. And I went to France and worked in this restaurant. And I did learn a ton. It was a little bit unfortunate because (laughs) this is classic. Um, The chef turned out he was, I think, 76 at the time, which seemed terribly old. Now it doesn't seem so terribly old to me. But back then it seemed like he should have just been, you know, he was just too old. But um, he was also not. Well, let's just say he wasn't. Well, he was short, fat, bald and ugly. And I say that because. Um, he was a lascivious and he put, you know, he hit it on me. And I think he mm-hmm. saw me as, oh, isn't this great? This young woman's going to come over and I can have my way with her. I mean, nothing happened, I mean, although there were some hairy moments, but I managed to survive. But it was hard. And also I felt disrespected because he wouldn't let me work the line. Um, for people who don't know what that means, that means you're actually during service, firing the food, finishing it off. You know, he wouldn't let me do that. He'd only let me do prep. And I learned a ton. I learned a ton, including um, food cost, because those Europeans do not waste food the way we do. So when I came back, my food cost was so much better. I was so much more frugal and thoughtful about using everything, so much less wasteful. But it was really hairy. I mean, the same, now I'm back, you know, when I, by when I moved to Boston after cooking school, I got back together with this nasty boyfriend who's now my husband. And uh, we had an hour long phone call every week where I would tell him what was going on and how hairy this was and how upset I was. This guy was hitting on me, but yet he wouldn't let me work the line and yet I was a chef in the United States how dairy yeah. and yeah. so what Bill would do we talk for an hour and then he'd send me all these murder mysteries to distract me don't ask me why that was a solution but it did help you know in my little bit of spare time I read these murder mysteries so that's how I got through it but I learned a ton I it took me six months to tell Julia I you know when I first got back I said oh I learned a ton my food cost is great blah 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 I learned this I learned that but it took me six months to tell her that this guy was inappropriate. And her response was, oh, dearie, what'd you expect? They're all like that. Get over it. So I don't think she'd said that, would have said that if anything really bad had happened. But, um, and now in retrospect, I, I think it was all bad. You know, it's just wrong. Uh, but I survived. Yeah. What can I tell you? And I also think God, it's such a different time, right? I mean, that was just, and I think that's um, a lot of, especially women like that, probably that was their first thought was, oh, just get over it. But you're you're exactly right. I mean, it, it is unacceptable uh, 100%. Um, yeah. So you go do this externship. You you come back. You, you're learning all of these things. But you and Julia really do have this. As you said, she had lots of children. Um, and I think you mentioned the word earnest earnestness. She likes your 
earnestness. That she kind of fit that to a T, though, right? I'm reading her book, My Life in France. Oh, isn't that just the best book ever? It makes me laugh out loud too because it's so. Me her. too. I literally was reading it last night in bed, giggling out loud because yes. I you can yes. hear her. Yes, it's you so can. Such in her voice. Yeah. Yeah, but she, if you're if the, where you're going with this is she was very earnest too. Yes, she was. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you think about, it, she didn't start cooking till she was in her 30s. She didn't start doing TV till you know years right. later. And yet, she, and she was in completely a man's world, and actually didn't work in a restaurant, but managed to become so accomplished as if she had. Mm -hmm. I mean, the kind mm -hmm. of things she did on her TV show while saying it was so easy were not easy at all. I mean, it was real skill that she had. Um, yes, yeah, she was amazing. I, I didn't quite finish about our relationship, though. I realized that. So it was a relationship that lasted until she died, mm -hmm. uh, meaning um, she looked out for me when I moved to New York in 81. She gave me introduction to all the chefs she knew in New York. Um, we stayed in touch. I had her on my PB, on, on my Food Network show several times. Um, we did a special on her the year before she died, or the year she died. What am I saying? The year she died. I think I got to do the last interview with her in Santa Barbara. And she wasn't, that was, I'd say that was, it was May she died in August, two days before her birthday, mm -hmm. a day before her mm -hmm. birthday. And uh, two days before her birthday. She did, died on Friday the 13th. Her birthday was the 15th. It was the first time I ever saw her not be 100% sharp. Um, she forgot a few things. Um, but at any rate, she was an angel. She came to our wedding. She met my daughter. Um, you know, when, when Ruthie was born, she and Paul walked up the walk up and came up to see the baby. And, um, she was just always there. She was fantastic. I mean, yeah. oh yes. Um, there's a few things in the book. I find myself highlighting them. She talks about, she went to dinner with someone and they kept apologizing for the food because it didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. And she said, I will never apologize for the food I make. And I just thought, oh man, such gumption that you just, you know, you're just gonna cook it and, and that's it. And then another story about Burblanc sauce, that it wasn't really popular and not a lot of people had heard about it, but she wanted to perfect it. And even writing her recipes, she would write them over and over and over and over and over again until they were absolutely perfect. So it just, again, she just fit in this world, you know, so perfectly because it was exactly what she wanted to do, such passion there. Oh, gosh, she had such passion. And she had passion all the way till the end. She mm. never lost mm. it, ever, ever. I One time I worked at Good Morning America for 20 years, and uh, 10 years of it was behind the scenes working with um, cookbook authors and chefs. And we had Barbara Kafka on who had done a book about high heat roasting. You know, essentially you set your oven to 500 and how, how you roast things, you know, mostly with protein. So on Thanksgiving, one year after the book came out, uh, Barbara was on and we did a 12 pound turkey in like an hour and a half, which is, you know, ridiculous. It's very quick. Yeah. Because it was at 500. I mean, a key part of it is letting it rest. And I got home from Good Morning America on Thanksgiving Day from working and I, the phone rings and it's Julia. And she wants to know, did that really work? Was that turkey really good? So then she, of course, had to try it out. And she did. And the trouble was the first ingredient in that recipe should be a clean oven. Whoops. 
So her oven was not clean. And I believe she set off the fire alarm and the fire department came, et cetera, et cetera. So she then did not like that method, but at least she tried it. And had she started with a clean oven, I think she would have had better success. Okay. Uh, when did you start with Food Network? You had a show, I think you had, well, you've had lots of shows, but um, when did you start with Food Network? 96. Um, 96. 1996. The network actually I, started in 93. Correct. Okay. And what had happened was when they started, so first of all, uh, when I was at GMA for the first 10 years, I was, I had this grandiose title, executive chef. And I got that job because Julia, well, no, I got that. I don't remember how I got the job, but it was, oh, it was because of Julia. What am I saying? Because Julia started doing GMA and she needed help. So I started helping her. And then eventually they hired me to do all the prep for all the chefs. Gotcha. So I had this gotcha. title, executive chef, which meant I ran the kitchen. And this was early days of TV. We're talking about the 80s. Mm -hmm. I did that on top of my uh, gourmet job. So it, it didn't, you know, I did them both at the same time. So when the Food Network started, they were very green. It was all um, news people. It wasn't food people. And uh, so they didn't really know what they were doing. And among other things, they knew that they needed to have some sort of kitchen to produce the food. And they knew that I was the executive chef at, at GMA. So I think that's why I had a meeting with them. I think it was 94. And they wanted to know, uh, would I like to run their kitchen? And I said, well, is that a salary job with benefits? And they said, no. And I said, well, I can't do it because at that point, I wanted to have kids and I needed, well, I, what am I saying? I had kids and I needed the coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but then they said, well, all right, would you like to have a, be a food editor? And I said, well, what's that? Oh, come up with ideas and stuff. I was like, that's a desk job. They said, yeah. I said, no, I'm not interested. I'm a chef. At that point I was the executive chef at Gourmet, which means I was the chef at the executive dining room. So then they said, would you like to do on air? I was like, I'd just been on, GMA put me on for fun with Joan and Charlie, who were the hosts at the time. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. um, it went pretty well, I thought. So I'd never wanted to be on air for all those years. I was behind the scenes, both at GMA and also with Julia. But then I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. Sure, I'll give it a shot. So I did a pilot for How to Boil Water, um, which was a show that Emerald was doing at the time. And they knew he was a talent, but they didn't think that was his show. And I did the 15-minute pilot. And I said every word I wanted to, and I made saumonier and asparagus vinaigrette, and I don't remember what dessert, but um, I was really awful, awful. <laughs> I was so nervous. I held up the asparagus to show what it should look like, and it's Aww. like this, you know, because I just, well, not quite that bad. I was like, and you want to make sure it's not sloppy. Um, and I never once smiled, which is something that you ob obviously understand about being on TV. It's really, really, really key. It helps to get your message across. But I look like a deer caught in the headlights. So I'd be like, and Solmanier means in the style of the Miller's wife, you know, so it's awful. So we're done. I thought that's it. They're not going to call me. But they were so desperate in the early days. They had no money. They couldn't fly people in. They didn't know who the players were. And I think maybe some people were saying nice things about me. I was also very lucky to have worked uh, with Jacques Pepin, uh, uh, both in restaurants and elsewhere. And he might have recommended me. I don't know. So they came back to me again. I don't know, you know, and said, do you want to try out for this show called Chef Du Jour? 
And that was their way of finding new chefs. And so all you had to do was, uh, I think it was five half an hour shows. And so I thought, I'm going to try again. I went and asked Gourmet if they would pay for my media training. I knew I needed media training. So Gourmet, and I said, if you'll pay for my media training, I'll do this show. And I'll start every show by saying I'm the executive chef of Gourmet Magazine. And I'll use Gourmet Recipes, which was smart anyway. Very smart. To have these recipes tested. And, you know, with it worked for both of us. So they said, sure. They paid for my media training. I did Chef Du Jour. And that was very well received. I mean, you know, maybe 10 people watched it as opposed to five. Because back, this was the early days of the Food Network. And then based on that, and then I filled in for somebody else who had a show, How to how to Feed Your Family on $100 mm-hmm. uh, a week, Michelle Irvater. And she'd started doing this thing where she had people call in. But they didn't really because it wasn't live TV. But you still talk to somebody and answer their questions. And I guess I did pretty well with that part of her show when I filled in for her for one round. So they hired me. I started on April 2nd, 1996 with a show called Cooking Live, which was this live call-in show. And I mean live. No time delay of any kind. What you saw was what was happening. So I dropped it. I burned it. We got six dirty phone calls in six years. Yep. We, um, and even though we screened the calls, sometimes we didn't you know, filter out the person. It was never terrible. It went too far because they got caught off immediately. But I loved it. It was an hour-long show from 7 to 8 on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And um, I would talk to about five people a night, maybe make three, four recipes. And we started doing this thing on Wednesday night called Cook Along. So we'd let everybody know what the ingredients were. I'd have the ingredients. They'd have the ingredients. We might say one onion chopped or one cup of chopped onions, but mostly we were all starting with raw ingredients because the other nights I'd have what we referred to, I'm sure you know, as swaps. Mm-hmm. So you'd cook the stew and you get to step two and there would be a, you know, a fill-in uh, that had already been cooked to that stage by the kitchen in the back. But on Wednesday nights, it was all from scratch. And that was really fun. Um, it was all really fun. I loved talking to people around the country and it was around the country. Yeah. And that became so impressed with how much they knew. So I did that for six years until 2002. And then we switched gears to a taped show. That was live. So I do that after Gourmet from seven to eight. And one year, 1999, I did a second live show from 10 to 11. That was crazy. But <laughs> hey, it was great for my uh, retirement, I have to say. I wrapped up all this money and put it away. Uh, but then they we switched gears to a tape show called Sarah's Secrets, which I did uh, for another a couple of years. So in the end, I did 1,500 shows for the Food Network. And it was uh, such a great time. I made so many friends. Oh, I, I, I bet. My husband has a really nice memory of you post 9-11, um, seeing, seeing you on TV. And he said it provided so much comfort. That is exactly what happened. We, uh, I was here for September 11th. My kids were marooned. They went to school in Brooklyn. I live in Manhattan for a couple of days. We couldn't get them home. It was, as you can imagine, a horrible time. Um, but the Food Network decided to suspend all programming, mm-hmm. all programming, um, in respect, out of respect. And so uh, if you tuned in, this message would come up saying, you know, our condolences and whatever they said. But they started getting phone calls and emails of please, please, please bring back 
your programming. We need it. We really need it. And um, we were the only, at that point, we were the only live show. In the beginning, when I first started, there were two live shows. There was a new show, and then there was mine. And then, but in the end, we were the only live show. And so we decided to do um, comfort food and to cover restaurants and chefs who had been working down there and bring them on. Um, and I've heard what you just said. People really needed that. And it, it supports uh, what I've often thought, which is, um, I mean, and this is going to sound so trite, but food really does bring people together. There's nothing political about food. Nope. It's really nope. a common denominator. And it was very, I believe it was very healing. It was very healing for me to be able to go back and do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it was nice, definitely a memory. And I remember that too. Very, very comforting. Um, I do want to wrap up just a little bit, but uh, I did ask Christopher Kimball this question, common mistakes home cooks make. And he said, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. I want to hear from uh, you. Oh, well, overcooked chicken breast is at the top of the list. Okay. And I don't blame anybody because of salmonella. You're scared to death, so you want to cook the heck out of it to mm -hmm. make sure you're safe, mm -hmm. but then it tastes like rubber bands. So that's not good. It has the texture of rubber bands. Uh, that would be the top of the list. Um, uh, pie dough is a big, a big issue. Um, you know, uh, for the oh god and there's so many reasons why and there's sure. so many ways sure. to fix it another one is dry turkey um but it's sort of a losing proposition cooking turkey anyway because the dark meat cooks differently than the white meat right. and we all discovered brining for a while and that's still a good way to go or spatchcocking but turkey dry turkey is another one um i think t timing uh is another uh, people are really mm. daunted mm. to have so many different parts you know you want to have not just the center of the plate, even if you're a vegetarian, you have something that's sort of the most significant part of it. And then you want to have other things, but that's a lot of things to make. So how do you figure out the time you sort of all comes out at once? I'd say that's a, a very, very big problem for a lot yeah. of people. Do you yeah. identify yourself more with being a cook or a baker or both, all of it? That's so interesting you should ask that question because I feel like most people are either cookers or bakers. Mm -hmm. And in that category, I'm a cooker. I have great admiration for people who do both well. You're a cooker too? Yeah, not a baker. Do you have a sweet tooth? Nope. Yeah, I think we're sort of more motivated by what excites us. And mm -hmm. I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not to say I don't appreciate sweets or a well-made pie or cookie or anything. Same. Yeah. I, just, I don't want to do it. No. <laughs> I mean, I do. And uh, the last job I had in restaurants was uh, at a really wonderful restaurant in New York City. And, um. My job was substitute cook, so one night a week. So every day I did a different job, so a different person in the kitchen got a day off. So one day I'd wash vegetables. The next day I was the chef de cuisine. Um, the next day um, I would do pastries. And the woman who owned the restaurant, Sally Dar, was an extraordinary uh, pastry chef. And she taught me a lot. So everything really that I know well, I learned from her. Amazing. But, Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I do want to, uh, we have a noon newscast coming up, so I know the director's like, hurry up. Um, I do want to get to our final three. Best advice mm -hmm. you've ever been given? Well, it's right back to something you brought up a minute ago when you were reading Julia Child's book. Okay. As a matter of fact, I have it on a little um, plaque on my refrigerator. 
never apologize, never explain. Stop it. Really? Nope. Yep. Oh, Sarah, I love that. Yep. Nope, that's my saying, and I share it with everybody. Because people are so glad you cooked and they didn't, so don't tell them what you did wrong. <laughs> Please. Did so you get that from Julia? Absolutely. Yep. God, that woman. Ah, that woman. Yeah. I tell you. She was so wise and so funny. Mm. Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. Um, what's your happy place? You know, it's interesting. I inherited, uh, well, actually, I'm going to just say our farmhouse. We have a family farmhouse in northeastern Massachusetts. It was built in 1726. It even has a ghost. Six fireplaces surrounded by fields. And that is absolutely, I, we've owned it for 60 years. A whole bunch of us, you know, it's like... Mm -hmm. Two, two brothers, my father and his and his brother, and then everybody had kids and kids that had kids. That's absolutely my happy place. I just adore it. I love it. Yeah. And you cook there? Oh, yeah. I really cook there. I'm so inspired to cook there. And there's all the farmer's markets, you know. And, mm. yeah, we all have fun. We eat way too much. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. That's a sign of a good time. Yeah. Um, final meal, final drink. What would that look like? Well, Whatever the final meal is, somewhere in there has to be stinky cheese or melted cheese mm. and um, either a red Bordeaux or a white Burgundy. Um, I'm very particular about my wine. Um, but there's so many other things I like, but cheese is really at the top. Oh, yeah. 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 Amen yeah. to that. And I do have one, one last question. What's for dinner tonight? Oh, I haven't even really figured it out yet. Okay. I've got a pork tenderloin and some Brussels sprouts. And some leftover rice that I was thinking I might do something interesting with. Uh, but I haven't figured it out yet. So I can't really tell you. Um, my husband asked, what do I want for dinner? And I said, there's a pork tenderloin in the freezer. Take it out. I think we just became best friends. I'm just going to say. I think we do too. We obviously have a lot in common. Yay. And I do know you're a good cook. I just know you are. Oh, thank you, Sarah Moulton. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for the last hour. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Beyond Pleasant. Um, if anyone out there is listening, you can listen to this wherever you like to listen to podcasts, but you can also watch it. And I um, advise that you do um, on YouTube or at KTVL.com. One more time, Sarah Moulton, thank you so much for just all your contributions over the last few decades. Yes. Thank you, Trish. Well, you're still inspiring young chefs out there. I know for sure. So, I try. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Happy holidays. Same to you.